The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, brought to you by Narcanon Suncoast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. This is Joni Siegel, and this is episode number 116. I am flying solo for this episode. Jason is hard at work helping people get off drugs and become clean and sober, and so isn't with me today, but I do have an interview today. Today, I have an interview with Pastor Michael Carter, and Pastor Michael is the Vice President of Victor Newman Ministries, and as we get to the close to the end of my interview, he will explain to you where the name Victor Newman came from. It is not actually a person's name, but it's very interesting how he and his lovely wife, Yvette, came up with that name. So without further ado, let's talk to Pastor Michael Carter. Pastor Michael, thank you for being with us today on the podcast. I really appreciate you telling your story to our listeners. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Awesome. So uh, the way I typically start out is Tell me, how did you get started with drugs? What was your journey? How'd you get there? Uh, I grew up around drugs. I I grew up in the 70s, and so I was a child and went to a lot of movies, and I watched all of what they called the black exploitation movies, black exploitation movies. And so I went to see Shaft and Superfly, and I remember being about six years old and watching Ron O'Neill in Superfly snorting either cocaine or probably cocaine, but snorting a white powder off a gold cross on his neck. And um, at about six, I couldn't wait to snort cocaine. Wow. I don't know that I ever saw Superfly, so I'm not sure I can relate to that. But yeah, unfortunate that it made it look so cool. Yeah, yeah. Super, super. I mean, it it was Superfly. And that's that's almost how the movie started from my recollection is him um, being in bed and just rolling over and just very casually snorting some cocaine off of a gold cross and of course he had the big car and the long hair and all the pretty women and um, I saw people in my neighborhood trying to emulate that lifestyle and I had some family members that were involved in drugs as well and so I was I was a smart student very good student and everyone kind of encouraged me to stay in school and I, I was a bookworm and a nerd but I was just fascinated by the ways of the streets wow. from an you, early age where did you grow up Michael? I'm from St. Louis Missouri and okay. so I grew up on the north side in you know the hood and so um, I grew up right down the street from the church that my family went to but around the all the other corners there was a lot of the street life going on so I had a a a, a very negative influence in my surroundings while at the same time I was being encouraged by people not to do what I was seeing them do don't do the the common phrase was uh don't do as I do do as I say but I uh I was a mimic in a lot of regards well hard to I, I mean hard not to be when you're looking at these guys look so successful they have all the money they have all the women I mean I would I, I can imagine that as a six-year-old, you'd go, yeah, that's the lifestyle I want. Well, an, an interesting dynamic, though, I, ha- I um, had an alcoholic uncle, and he and I had spent a great deal of time 
I, we, when my grandfather di- died, we became kind of a matriarchal family. And so my grandmother's house was just the, the, the center of our lives. And I had an uncle who still lived with his mother, my grandmother. And um, he was a brilliant man, but he couldn't get past that Gilby's gin. And so I watched him. And as I got older, I really didn't have a lot of respect for him only because he had so such a poor self-image of himself that he and I had conflict because he wanted to try to exert his masculinity over me as a, as a young man coming up. And uh, in my mind, I was just like, you know, just go have another drink and sit down right. and, and just leave me alone and do your thing. And so I, I vowed, even as I started using drugs and, and getting high with my friends and drinking a little bit, I vowed that, that I would never be like my uncle Pooji. And uh, yet, I became the same man and, and as many of my mentors, many of the people I saw, I said, I, that wouldn't happen to me, but the disease of addiction is undefeated. Right. So how old were you when you started experimenting with drugs? Uh, well, I was nine when I first snorted heroin. And so um, I was in, a, in an environment where heroin was being sold and it was hidden kind of in plain sight before me. And so I couldn't wait to pull the plate out and get the credit it was actually a um a playing card and so i did like i had seen everybody else do and took my first hit of heroin at nine i was smoking marijuana by the time i was 13 and um i wasn't much of a drinker but by the time i got to high school i went to a private all boys high school on one of the best high schools in the state of missouri and so my classmates had a lot of keg parties and so I, me being from the the city and knowing the people that i knew i could bring a little reefer and they always had beer and so we hit it off real well that's one of the amazing things about the world of drugs and alcohol is it's a pretty level playing field you don't find a lot of discrimination if you got it and somebody wants it they don't care what your race color nationality or creed is they're about let's do it together that's right that's right addiction knows none of that knows no economic status no educational status no religion, like you say, no race, no nothing. Drugs, That's right. Drugs and, are what they are. And and so I, I, I really had, you know, looking back in retrospect, it would have been extremely difficult for me um, to avoid uh, abusing drugs and alcohol because when I got ready to graduate from high school, I only applied to one college, and uh, that was the Loyola University in New Orleans, and the only reason I applied was to go to New Orleans. Okay. And so at 17, with um, already a pension for smoking marijuana and drinking alcohol, I, I moved to New Orleans, and that was all she wrote, pretty much. Okay. So what was your major in college? What did you want to study? Where did you want to go with that? I actually wanted to be a teacher when I graduated from high school, and everyone that I knew told me I didn't want to be a teacher because of the... Um, the, the pay that teachers so receive teachers don't make any money because right. teachers don't make any yeah. money yes and so that was my passion that was my 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 one i i, I think i knew at the time that that was my my gifting and my skill set mm-hmm. and and that was what i felt comfortable in learning and sharing what i learned with others and yet i was steered away from what i know was my passion and my gifting and my calling and so i became an accountant because it just back in the 80s everybody was talking about someone having an MBA and so I figured I could go get an accounting degree and get an MBA. I didn't even know what an MBA was <laughs> or or how a, a, a being a master of business administration would would 
enrich my life. I just knew MBA supposedly made money. And so that's what I went to school to do and found out I hated it. Oh, boy. So it was easy to cut class and go wherever the party was. There you go. There you go. Did your um, drug use, did it escalate in college? Did it get worse? Oh, or? absolutely. I was introduced to cocaine um, okay. in in, a, in ready form in college. And, and the interesting thing is that, again, there was uh, no real socioeconomic divide once you got to school and got on the party scene. I mean, there were times that you felt like, that that I certainly felt like I was one of the um, the less than's because of my socioeconomic status. I had I went to I had classmates from all over the world. You know, mm-hmm. kid freshmen that came to school with Porsches and you know dressed in designer clothes every single day. And yet, when we got together around the bong or some Bob Marley or you know sat together in someone's dorm room, we were all just. 18 year olds trying to have a good time and then somebody pulled out some cocaine and so there were people from all over the world actually in the room at this time there were a couple of colombians um some people from florida some of my friends from missouri just people from all over and uh it it just seemed again much like when i saw when i first saw it as a kid um it just seemed so glamorous and we were young and and fun and having a good time and little did i know that that would eventually lead me to abandoned buildings and pea stained mattresses and so yeah. uh that then that's the deceptive nature of addiction it always starts out as a good time that's right that's right and then it gets it gets worse from there so Absolutely. when did it so you're having a good time you're in college i'm assuming you're still going to class and you're still working on getting your degree when did that all start to kind of unravel a bit well it started unraveling because again i i I actually have always been a good networker, <laughs> and so I was. Um, I, I made friends with a lot of the the um, the faculty of the school that actually lived in the city. You know, the the um, there were some students who also were from New Orleans, and so I started traveling around the parts of New Orleans that most students did not travel and so I realized quickly that I that some of my new friends could take care of some of the needs of my school friends and so I I wouldn't have ever considered myself a drug dealer or that I really sold drugs it was like going to Costco and getting you hooked him up yeah it was I I just go to Costco and get a, a whole lot and then come back and share it with everybody and so mine ended up being free and that was my mindset until uh, the 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 state of Louisiana got involved, and so I I ended up catching a, a charge um, because I didn't know anyone and I wasn't from there, and the people from there were a little more connected than I was, and so I learned the world of uh, the political aspect of uh, crime and punishment as wow. well, and so I ended up being part of my probation was that I was to leave the state and my probation would be transferred back to Missouri. So I came home from school, um, both having dropped out of school and caught a a criminal case. And so I came back to limped back home um, on probation. Yet the terms of my probation, obviously being drug related, I was drug tested. And so I began to figure out all the ways that you could still get high and pass drug tests. And so that was really the point when I began to see this is a little bit more problematic than just having fun. Interesting. 
Interesting. What did your what was your relationship like with your family at the time? Uh, my family still loved me. They they and uh, I was at the beginning phases of um, really learning how to manipulate. Yeah, I'm an I'm an only child. Um, I have two aunts that don't have children, so I didn't have a lot of cousins. And so my grandmother really devoted much of her time and energy on me. The two aunts, you know, they kind of were my proxy mothers. And so I kind of had this matriarchal surround atmosphere surrounding me and all these ladies just loving on me and saying, oh, that's OK. And I knew how to, you know, play it up. I was never really a rebellious a uh, disrespectful child i take the trash out i yes ma'am and then i turn around and do what i wanted to do or ask ask for more money or or whatever so um there was a, a degree of enabling I was just from my say, family as they well oh, they, yeah. they definitely yeah. enabled me because again i was a good good student still i got to st louis and enrolled in, in college and um again i was respectful and very very nice and kind but you know when i got in my car and left to do my thing i pulled out all the stops i guess you could say there you go your mom was there too yeah my mother was there okay um but but i kind of had an, est- uh, an estranged relationship with my mother you know as a as a young man in my early 20s um just because as she was trying to find herself and i was a young adult and so i really grew up with my grandmother uh, much through high school and so as my mother and I was still trying to work on our relationship, she she was an enabler as well because um, there there was a, a season or two where because of, of our past issues, she didn't want to be too much of a disciplinarian or really call me out or so I, I, I and I took advantage of that as well. Right. Was your dad in the picture at all? Uh, my father was not in the picture, but my father was um, probably a, what you, we would call today a functional addict. He was actually a, a, a high school principal, but um, in my early 20s, I got hired with my father a few times as well, um, and that was kind of his way. He a, a lot of a lot of addiction, I, I guess you could say, would I have found is traced to some sort of childhood trauma, mm-hmm. and so I've learned in recovery over the years that there's a point where something happens to individuals and they seek. Um, some sort of self-medication they don't want to feel the way they feel or they're looking for an escape or something's happened and and they want to um just estrange themselves from reality as, as best they can and usually it turns out to be drugs and alcohol and so um my father being a just a broken individual and and looking for a way to connect with me he um was a functional addict and he knew that i was in the beginning of my addiction and so that was kind of a, a rallying point for our relationship i guess you could say i got it okay now did you graduate from college i i did not graduate from college i i got an outstanding another opportunity uh came my way and so i was um recruited for the mcdonald's management program huh. in in I was actually a second semester sophomore and so I still went to school part-time through my junior year but I started making money at McDonald's and getting some responsibilities that really required more than a 40-hour work week and and I was still kind of burning the candle on both ends as well and so between making money and partying and school out of the three school was the one that that had to take the back seat got it so life is good. What, 
you know, we we talk about this when we originally started the podcast, we called it Point of No Return, and then we kind of switched the name around a little bit. But what was the point at which you went, I need to change this. I need to make a change in my life. What was what was your what was that moment for you? That, what happened? That, that's a great question because it's easy to look at someone else's life and say, wow, that should be the point of no return or that should be their rock bottom. Um, I had plenty of times that for a regular person, that would have been a wake up call, a rock bottom. I've had um, I've survived head on collisions, wow. um, falling asleep behind the wheel, coming back from a party. On, on two occasions, uh, one was a head-on collision. I ran off the the road on the highway, traveling back from Illinois. I've been shot at. I've uh, someone has tried to slit my throat. I've I've had numerous cases. I fell asleep cooking French fries after a weekend binge and um, set my kitchen on fire and was actually asleep. And to this day, I have no idea how I could have survived um from dying from smoke inhalation because when i came to and put the fire out and walked back in the house i couldn't breathe for 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 longer than five seconds so today i still wonder how i had slept for over an hour in in that situation and um i actually opened all the windows aired my house out and went and bought some drugs and came back and got high in the back backyard okay. because i still couldn't sit in the house so so you didn't my, hit that point yet <laughs> no what would i think what would really began to make me realize um and it wasn't really for me i i was actually committing passive suicide for the last couple of years of my addiction i wouldn't put a shotgun in my mouth and actually pull the trigger however if i had gotten shot in an alley or if i overdosed i was actually um I would come to in the afternoons and regret the fact that I woke up. I, I really wanted to die in my sleep. Wow. And so I remember being at my mother's and my son being a teenager and I didn't have a driver's license because my license had been suspended so many times from um, driving while license suspended or revoked or being caught with drugs in, in my vehicle, in which case your license is suspended in the state of Florida for two years. Okay. So I could never overcome that hurdle. I couldn't go two years consecutive to get my license back without catching another charge. So now you're in Florida? Yes. Okay. Yes, I moved to Florida to do the ge- geographical cure at 27 okay. when my when my first child was born, thinking that if I got married, now I've got a baby, I'm gonna get married, I'm gonna move to Florida, and I'm just going to change my life. I'm just going to stop. Unfortunately, the thing about the geographical cure is that when you get where you're going, you've usually brought yourself with you. <laughs> and nine times out of ten, you can find drugs in that area. You can drop me off in any major city and I can find drugs within 20 minutes. Right. Just a reminder that you are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast, you can go to our brand new website, theaddictionpodcast.com, or you can visit our Facebook page by the same name, The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com. 
or you can call us at 727-314-7080. That's 727-314-7080. Any one of those ways you can reach out to us. And if you'd like to tell your story, please let us know. For further information on Narcan on Suncoast, call 1-877-339-3324. That's 1-877-339-3324. Do you have a loved one struggling with drug addiction and you've tried everything to help them and failed? Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-866-989-4499 today and say podcast to get a 10% discount. Or Go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. That's N-E-W-M-A-N-I-N-T-E-R-V-E-N-T-I-O-N-S.com. Type in the word podcast, get a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. All right. Okay. And so I saw my, so I was at my mother's house and I saw my son and I just had a flashback of when I was um, a young teenager and my uncle was living with his mother sleeping on the couch. And I saw myself, um, I actually saw myself looking at my uncle, but I was doing it through my son's eyes. And I realized that, you know, I had to be the curse breaker and I had to fix myself and get myself in order so that I could not only um, reclaim my destiny, but also show my show my son a different way and, and be the, the father that I was destined to be. Break that pattern. I had if to you break will. I had to be the curse breaker, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So was that your moment? Did that you That was my moment and, and so it's it's amazing that uh, when we decide and really make a decision, the the there's a, a a secular phrase that when the student is ready the teacher appears. Yes. But doors started opening for me and um, I started some serious recovery and found I ended up having to go actually to St. Pete for um, some residential recovery program. And, and in St. Pete, I, I still had to do some more independent research because um, St. Pete's probably not the best place for somebody to go try to get clean. Yep. I, yeah, I would guess probably and, not. And, yeah. and I stayed in four or five different residential recovery settings and each each area or each home you could stand on the porch of the re- of the recovery house and throw rocks and hit a drug dealer and so it was it was just that simple to get distracted even in a re- what was supposed to be a recovery environment but that's where well the drug um, dealers know where to go absolutely well yeah. I, I i think also that many of the the people that were facilitating these homes, I, I found that they weren't really concerned with whether an individual got clean or not. They were just trying to fill beds so they could continue to get their grant money. Wow. And so there was no real um, pattern of success or a track record of success for any of those places. And that was really when I began to see um, or my leadership in the in the world of recovery or really my compassion for other people suffering in addiction, even though I 
hadn't figured it out or gotten it right for myself i still had um a relationship with my mother and i I had clothes in the cleaner she would bring me clothes so i could always um freshen up shave go find another job make a make a new resume and get another job instantly and i was in settings with people that couldn't read and everyone in their family was either selling drugs or incarcerated or on drugs and so when i saw that I was there pretty much because of poor choices. Right. And most of these people were really there without much choice. It really convicted me. And so I was one of those people that um, I was an advocate for the rights in all the, the houses that I stayed in. And so that always got me put out pretty, oh, pretty quickly. <laughs> I'm sure. So I've been put out of some of the worst places <laughs> and the best places for recovery. But Dang. that's all part of my journey in just learning how to not only be submitted, but also to lead and, and take a stand for what's right. I think that's fabulous. So when did you get clean? How long I got you clean, been clean in 2003. I went okay. to a ministry in Riverview, Florida. Can I say the name? Absolutely. The Lighthouse, um, the Lighthouse Freedom Center, Riv- Riverview, Florida. It is an 18-month residential program, and I use the term program loosely. It's really a lifestyle. It really is an opportunity to abide in the things of God. You live on a campus and you serve and work on the on the campground. So you're really in ministry from the day you get there. And uh, it's communal living. So even in the even though you come there for yourself, you really see that you're a part of something. And the longer you stay, the more opportunity there is for the word of God to start taking effect in your life. You start changing, get a little pride about yourself. And then you see a new person come in a few weeks later or a few months later. And then you have an opportunity to see how you were just a short period of time ago. So it gives you an opportunity to pour back into someone's life at a real early stage of your recovery. And also um, and help to, to see that you've changed a bit as well. Yep. The newcomers all, and and so even in in the recovery setting, I love the newcomers today because it shows me that I don't have to go back out there and do any more independent research. Addiction is still kicking butts and taking names. Yes, it is. So you didn't actually get clean in any of those uh, residential rehabs in St. Pete. I did not. Actually, one of the last ones that I went to, an amazing thing happened, is that I knew that the young man, uh, so there is a a detox in St. Petersburg, and what generally happens is, that after you've detoxed two or three days, uh, you become eligible to go to another program. And so they have a case manager who assists you. And so then they have a list of all of the programs in St. Pete. And so generally there is someone uh, who's got a little ministry. They they may have gotten a license online and taken a few courses. And so then open a little house and and find out how to get some grant money. And so just to keep the beds filled, they will stay in contact with the detox. And when one person leaves their ministry or program or setting, they'll go and get another one. And so the the, the man came and I I just there was something about him that I knew was not trustworthy. Right. Yet at the same time, I I had a just uh, a, a a very surreal feeling that he would be the person, though, that would lead me to the next place where I would find my freedom. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, he had a little how after, after he put me out of his house the first time, the next time I saw him, he took me to the lighthouse. And that's where it all came together. Wow. 
That's, I mean, that's amazing. Is the Lighthouse program, is that still in operation? The Lighthouse is still in operation. I'm a strategic, our ministry is a strategic partner with the Lighthouse. And so at this time, we don't have a residential facility. And so I recruit, not not necessarily recruit, but whenever I do a homeless feeding or I run across people in a recovery meeting or people that are out, um, that are obviously homeless, if they're, asking for money for various things or they've got the sign that talks about all the calamities in their life then i'll pull over and and i help them out as best i can i might buy them lunch i might take them some water or i might find an odd job for them to put a few dollars in their pocket but my mindset is really to get to the question of are you really ready to change your life and if so i know a place where you can go you have to be prepared to go for a year and so i don't i don't um sugarcoat what it is you know it's really like a spiritual boot camp because there are rules but you know at that point in in a, in a person's life if they're sleeping under the bridge they could probably use a bit of structure in their lives and some accountability yes. and some responsibility and that's all for character building purposes and so in the last couple of months i've taken three men over there and they're all doing well and and plugged into the program and ideally when they finish that curriculum we might have a facility here in Pinellas County and they could come back and and be a be a part of our staff and continue to have some accountability and grow and give back to others. That's awesome. Now, when you say our staff, yes. explain what you're talking about. Our I believe staff. that's the Victor Newman Ministries. Absolutely. So Tell uh, us. Victor Tell me Newman about that. Victor Newman Ministries was birthed when I was a student at the Lighthouse. I, I found myself um in a in a bunk bed with a probably a 300 pound guy sleeping above me <laughs> and i just felt like wow my you know i was anytime you're a full-grown man if you're not in the military and you're in a bunk bed your life's probably out of control out of order in some degree you're probably incarcerated or you're in, or you're in a program somewhere okay. if you're a full-grown man on a bunk bed listening to this and you're not in the military <laughs> seek help immediately exactly we know where you are <laughs> <laughs> exactly and, and so I was in this bunk bed and I just felt like, wow, you know, such a, a loser. Um, I, I just felt terrible about myself. And so my self-esteem, I, I was really struggling with self-esteem uh, to the point of, you know, I I had let my a lack of self-control really lead down the path of self-destruction again. And so uh, instantly the the Holy Spirit dropped in from into my spirit a scripture from first corinthians fifteen fifty seven that says thanks be to god who gives us the victory so it was apparent in my life that i could not figure out how to be victorious or how to engage in victorious living and so i caught the revelation that man if i connect to the things of god thank god that he is the god of victory i can connect to him and then walk in victory and and so that 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 really resonated with me however i still felt like the same old guy and so how could I be victorious and I'm the same old guy? And I read a little further and Second Corinthians five seventeen dropped into my spirit, which is that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. And so instantly I just got that connection that in in Christ I could be a, go from that same old loser and that same old deadbeat into a victorious new man. And uh, lo and behold, 10 years later, my wife and I were out doing ministry feeding the homeless and uh we had done so for several nights during the cold weather nights and someone 
recognized us and they had seen us out before and just asked what our ministry was and we looked at each other and we said it together in unison victor newman ministries and wow. it was really um it came to manifestation then although it had been birthed 10 years earlier well wow. so you're the founder of victor newman i ministries. am the founder i okay. am the i am the yeah i'm the founder and it's my baby and uh it's really weird but my wife's kind of like the father ah oh, there you go there you go. Your wife, your lovely wife, Yvette. Absolutely. And so it would not be possible without her. The Bible declares that he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains the favor of the Lord. And she's certainly a good thing, but it's God's favor over my life that almost from the, the, the very, our very first date, she came to a youth ministry that I was operating in my church. And youth ministry went from the 12 little boys that I um, played games with and drank Kool-Aid with and played basketball with and then would share a little scripture but none of the girls would come to to the meeting and then my wife came and all the girls came and so youth ministry doubled (laughs) on our first date and uh, all our ministry initiatives have just been blessed because of the fruit of her hands actually that's awesome so what year did you did you start Victor Newman. Well, Victor Newman Ministries, Ministries was started in about 2008, and so okay. we, we've been grassroots ever since. Uh, we've just incorporated and become a 501c3 not-for-profit ministry within the last two years, and in the last four years, we've distributed close to 700,000 pounds of food in, in the Largo neighborhood very wow. very quietly. Very few people know about it, and so we're, we're actually at a point now where... Through our partnership with Feeding Tampa Bay, uh, we're, we're trying to expand our, our tents because we need a facility. We need a warehouse. We need commercial refrigeration and freezers. We need a commercial kitchen so we can feed the, the homeless community as we continue to do in downtown Clearwater. Uh, yep. Each week, uh, we get 6,000 pounds of food, which we distribute at our church. And um, because of spatial limitations, we have to give it away. The day that it comes in, right. because we don't have a sufficient storage you can't space. Store it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. So it's been it's been an amazing journey, and so the major part of my story and, and most of my witness is that you know if God can use a fool like me, you know just imagine <laughs> what He would do with your life if you submit and allow Him. You know, stop that. You know, we we particularly when you come out of addiction and get into early recovery, there's a lot of self-sabotage because we can frequently be caught in a situation where we're unable to forgive ourselves or we don't believe that we deserve uh, this new life because of our past mistakes. And uh, me being an only child and, and being surrounded by so many people who really enabled me and, and all the women in my life who really loved me I, when even though God's love is unfathomable, I can believe that God loves me because I've, I've had so much love showered upon me. And so I was able to kind of, uh, I was very nonchalant about the things I did and, and pretty cavalier. And so it's easy for me to, to now walk in God's forgiveness because I've always been kind of like, oh, well, I'm sorry and, and just move on. But the difference today is that when I uh, say I'm sorry or I repent, I, I really have no intention on doing it again. In the past, I'd say I'm sorry, knowing full well I was going to do it again. Right. But today, um, I, I understand that God is ever forgiven and often merciful. And so my intention is just to um, continue to live a life that demonstrates that I'm grateful and thankful for another day. 
That's awesome. And I would, I would put forth that in order to receive God's forgiveness to some degree, you have to forgive yourself as well. And so they kind of go hand in hand. And so if, if people are listening and they feel that they have strayed so far that there's no way for them to come back, I would say, you know, start maybe with forgiving yourself and then seeking God's forgiveness. And there is a way back because one of the whole purposes of this podcast is to, is for people who are listening to know that there is hope for them and there is help available. You know, there's, um, there are so many people such as yourself, such as the Victor Newman Ministries, such as the Lighthouse in Riverview, Florida. There are so many people who want nothing more than to help those of you who are listening who feel that there is no help or there is no hope available. So I really appreciate what you're doing. If someone wanted to contact you or Victor Newman Ministries, how do they do that? Yes, well, we can be reached at our website, victornewman.org, V-I-C-T-O-N. Or I'm sorry, V I C T O R N E W M A N dot org, and uh, our website will be updated very soon. But we've got a functioning website. We can be contacted through our website. It's an opportunity to give to see what we're currently involved in and um, become a part of our mailing list. We mail updates regularly to let individuals know what what some of our ministry initiatives are we're we're very um what one of the things that i love about being involved or actually being in charge or being (laughs) in in leadership in a ministry is that we don't have the 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 bureaucratic red tape that in that most organizations um find themselves mired in you know if we know if we have if we have some peanut butter on hand and we've got some money in the bank and some bread comes in and I know where 50 men are, I don't need to have a committee. I don't need to have a, to call a board meeting to make some peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and buy some bottled water and go take it out to people that are in need. And very so good point. we are <laughs> we are very fluid in our ministry initiatives. And when we know where people are that are in need and we have those resources, then we kind of just put the boots on the ground and go make it happen and so we really don't find ourselves involved in a lot of initiatives and then we go full speed ahead and we ask God to bless it we see where God is moving or where there's a need and we know that we can bring the love of God and some compassion and um, just a giving attitude and a smile and a friendly face and a word of encouragement and and that's what our mission is each and every day that's awesome that's awesome. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Well, thank you for Those having Those of you us. listening, victornewman.org. Thank you for joining us today on the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Our message is, as always, to do something about it if you know someone who is addicted and know that you're not alone. There is help available. There is hope for you and your loved ones. You just need to take the first step and reach out. You can call us if you don't want to call anybody else. And our number is 727-314-7080. Or you can reach out to Narconon Suncoast at 1-877-339-3324. We'll talk to you again next week. 
You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, call 877-339-3324 or visit www.narcononsuncoast.org. Narconon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard. 